The Old Testament reading for today is Genesis 17, 1 through 19. Genesis 17, 1 through 19. The New Testament reading is Luke 1, 57 through 66. Luke 1, 57 through 66. The title of today's sermon is, His Name is John. Uh, For here we in Luke will find an account of the birth of John the Baptist and this declaration on behalf of Zechariah, the father of John. His name is John, plays a very central role in this passage. Genesis 17, verse 1. Hear now the reading of God's most holy word. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you, and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. And I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised, every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations, kings of people shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said, to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, No, but Sarah, shall, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. Let us go now to Luke 1, 57-66. There are many connections between the passage I have just read and the passage I'm about to read. I will not be able to draw all of them out for you in the sermon today. I hope that you're able to make some of the connections yourself. Uh, they are indeed beautiful. Luke 1, 57 through 66. 
Now, the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed. And he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all of the neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. This is now the reading of God's most holy word. May he add his blessing to the preaching of it this morning. I hope you do not grow tired of me reminding you of Luke's stated purpose for writing this gospel. When an author states their purpose for writing, we should make note of it and not forget it, for it will help us to understand what they have written Luke tells us in his opening words that he wrote so that Theophilus and all who love God along with him would have certainty concerning the things we have been taught. We have been taught that Jesus is the Christ and that salvation is found in him. We have been taught that all who turn from their sins and trust in him will be saved. Theophilus believed this, as do most of you here today. And Luke wrote this gospel to bring greater certainty to Theophilus and to us concerning Jesus, the Messiah, and our salvation in Him. We're only a short way into Luke's gospel, but already we can see his method. He presents us with two types of evidence to prove that Jesus was and is the promised Messiah, the Redeemer promised from long ago. One He presents eyewitness testimony to us concerning the miraculous things that God did when He brought Jesus into the world. So the first thing that Luke presents to us is eyewitness testimony. He says, this is what happened in history, in time, really and truly. And he presents evidence to us concerning these things. The angel Gabriel appeared to Zechariah in the temple. Zechariah was made mute For nine months because of his disbelief. His wife Elizabeth conceived and bore a son in her old age, though she was previously barren. The angel Gabriel also appeared to Mary, though she was a virgin. She conceived and bore a son in her womb. When Mary visited her relative, the child in Elizabeth leapt inside her womb. And then both women were moved by the Holy Spirit to give praise to God for the marvelous things He had done. And would soon do. So you can see that Luke presents us with the facts concerning the things, the marvelous and miraculous things that God did in those days when he brought the Messiah into the world, along with the Messiah's forerunner, the man who would be called John the Baptist. Two, Luke also presents us with the Word of God as a witness to Christ. And by word of God, I mean the Old Testament Scriptures. I hope you can see that the first chapter of Luke's Gospel is 
saturated with quotations from and allusions to the Old Testament Scriptures. Luke wants us to know for certain that Jesus was brought into the world, not only in a miraculous or supernatural way, which was itself a sign that He came from God above, but that He came in fulfillment of promises and prophecies previously made. I hope that you do not grow tired of hearing this, um, about these promises and prophecies, or these types and shadows that pointed forward to Christ and were fulfilled by Him and in Him. Um, Do not grow tired of this, brothers and sisters, and I pray that you do not come to see this as simply something that I am passionate about, you know, a, a hobby horse. Of, of, a, of the preacher, if you will. Uh, preachers sometimes can uh, develop hobby horses and ride them uh, quite persistently. I do not think that that is what this is with me, this obsession with seeing Christ in the Old Testament. In fact, I think that this is the way that Luke presents Christ to us. He tells us the facts concerning what happened in the days when Elizabeth and Mary conceived. He tells us the historical facts, but he presents them to us in such a way so as to make it clear that these things did not just happen. They happened in fulfillment to things previously said. And in this way, he seeks to strengthen the faith of Theophilus and of us. Now, if these things just happened, uh, this should get our attention, for things happened in a miraculous way. I've just listed them to you. An angel appeared to Zechariah. An angel appeared to Mary. Zechariah was made mute. A woman who was advanced in years, who was barren all of her life, conceived and she bore a son. A woman who was a virgin, conceived and bore a son. These are all miraculous things that ought to get our attention and demonstrate that this Jesus that was brought into the world through this woman Mary was from above. But how much more so ought we to see Jesus as the Messiah of God when we see Him set in terms of the Old Testament prophecies and promises that spoke concerning Him. These things were fulfilled in Christ. These things that happened, these miraculous things that happened, were foretold. And Luke wants us to know it. This is how he seeks to strengthen our faith, to see that Christ was brought into the world in fulfillment to the Scriptures. Luke records the supernatural events that mark Jesus' birth along with the Scripture-saturated words of Gabriel, Mary, and Elizabeth, so that we might know for certain that Jesus of Nazareth was no mere man. He was the long-awaited Messiah, the Promised One, our Redeemer and Lord. And I want you to notice that the same pattern is present in the passage we have now come to. In Luke 1, 57-66, we find a record of the great and marvelous things that God has done. Zechariah was made to speak again after being made mute for so long. And in verses 67 through 80, we find the prophecy of Zechariah, wherein he blesses the Lord God of Israel for the redemption and salvation that would be earned by Christ. Like Gabriel, Elizabeth, and Mary before him, his words, Zechariah's words, drip with Old Testament quotations and allusions, for he had come to see and believe that the child in Mary was indeed the Savior who was promised in the Old Testament. His son John would prepare the way for him. 
his son John would be the promised forerunner. And in this, Zechariah rejoiced. This morning we will consider only verses 57 through 66 for the sake of time, really. And two miraculous events are recorded for us in this passage. First, Luke tells us that Elizabeth bore a son. She gave birth to a son, and this is to be regarded as miraculous given her age and her previous barrenness. Second, Luke tells us that Zechariah's mouth was opened and his tongue loosed. So let us now consider these things and their significance. First, consider Luke's account of the birth of John the Baptist. Verse 57 says, Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. There's a lot of information packed into this single sentence. We are to remember that Elizabeth was advanced in years and that she had been barren. We are to remember the word that the angel Gabriel spoke to Zechariah when he appeared to him in the temple as recorded previously in Luke's Gospel. The angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to their Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So, about nine months had passed, and the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. In verse 58 we read, And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. You should notice a theme developing. In those days, people were taking notice of the great mercy that God was showing to His people. And this led them to rejoice. Elizabeth, remember, noticed that Mary was blessed by the Lord in 142, and she rejoiced. Mary agreed that she was blessed by the Lord in 148. She rejoiced. She knew that God had done great things for her. This is said in 149. She knew that God was merciful towards her. This is said in 150. She rejoiced. And now we hear that Elizabeth's neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. So the Lord is showing mercy. He is showing kindness. He is showing grace. People are taking notice of this. Mary, Elizabeth, Zechariah, their neighbors. Word is even spreading throughout the hill country. People are taking notice of this. And they are beginning to rejoice. And I do believe that Luke presents this to us so that we might be caught up in this rejoicing as well. That we might see the things that were happening in those days as the outpouring of God's mercy and grace to His people. We're to take note of it and we are to rejoice as well. It's impossible to know how many of these neighbors and relatives knew about the words that the angel had spoken to Zechariah in the temple concerning the identity of of this miraculously conceived child. Do you understand what I'm getting at here? What did they know? Did they only notice that Elizabeth was pregnant after years of barrenness while she was advanced in age? Is that what they knew? Or had the word spread to them that Zechariah saw something in the temple, saw a vision and received some word concerning the promised Messiah and his forerunner? 
After all, uh, some explanation would have to be given as to why Zechariah could not speak. And so I do think that perhaps word had spread about what happened to Zechariah in the temple. How is it that Zechariah, though once able to speak, may be a very verbose man, how is it that he is now mute and silent? Excuse me for a moment, please. Some may be wondering, though, well, how could word be spread about what Zechariah heard in the temple uh, if he could not speak? Um, well, I think we are given a hint, in fact, in this passage. In 163, the text says, And Zechariah asked for a writing tablet and wrote something down. Perhaps this was his method of communication during those days. I tend to think that this was his method of communication. And I do tend to think that word spread about what was said to Zechariah while in the temple, the neighbors perhaps were beginning to wonder what it was that the Lord was doing. And as they came to rejoice with Elizabeth, perhaps they came to rejoice with her not only because she gave birth to a son, which was itself a great and natural blessing, but because of what the Lord was doing in and through this righteous couple. She brought forth a son. The Lord was merciful to her to bring her through the great trial of childbirth. The Lord was also merciful to bring the forerunner of the Messiah into the world through her. Certainly, they came to rejoice with her over these natural things. Perhaps they also were coming to rejoice with her over the supernatural things that the Lord was doing in their midst. Whatever the case, the neighbors and relatives of Elizabeth came to rejoice with her. And I think there is a simple application to be drawn from this fact. We ought to rejoice with one another concerning the mercies of God, brothers and sisters, be they common and earthly or special in saving. It does seem to me that grumbling and complaint come more naturally to us. But we ought to give thanks to God for His mercies and to rejoice in them privately and together. In 1 Thessalonians 5.16, Paul says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. And in Romans 12.15-16, he says, Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep, live in harmony with one another. Brothers and sisters, as I read this text, that the neighbors of Elizabeth and Zechariah came to rejoice with her over this mercy that God had shown to, to her. It reminded me that we need to live in this way ourselves, in our communities, yes, but especially as a congregation. Instead of being given to grumbling and complaint, we ought to be uh, taken up with thanksgiving, not only individually, but with one another as well, concerning the mercies that God has shown to us, mercies that are natural. God has been mercy, merciful to us in natural and earthly ways. It is indeed true, uh, but especially we ought to give thanks to God concerning the mercies He has shown to us in Christ Jesus. In Luke one fifty nine, we read, And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child. Of course, John was not unique in this. Every male child who was born in the line of Abraham was to be circumcised on the eighth day in obedience to the command that was given to Abraham, as recorded in Genesis 17:9 and following. So John was far from unique. But I think it can also be said that John's circumcision, and especially Jesus' circumcision, were particularly significant 
For it would be through these men, and especially Jesus, that the sign of circumcision would be fulfilled. Are you following with me here? John was not unique in this, and neither was Jesus. All others who were male, born in the line of Abraham before them, were circumcised also. It was the sign of the Abrahamic covenant. But that sign, the sign of circumcision, did really find its fulfillment in Jesus Christ, the Messiah. This was the Son of Abraham, the promised son. Indeed, we know that Abraham and Sarah were given a son in their old age. His name was Isaac, but Isaac was not the promised one, and neither was Jacob or any other male child born to Abraham in the course of history. But Jesus Christ was the one. He was the singular son of Abraham who came in the flesh to live in obedience to the law of God, to suffer and die in the place of sinners, even being cut off from the land, as if he were a sinner. He was laid in the grave, and there he rose again and ascended uh, to the right hand of, of God in heaven. And so, John and Jesus were not unique in having circumcision applied to them, but there was something special about their circumcisions, and that uh, these two figures would be especially um, used by God to bring to fulfillment the things that were promised to Abraham long ago. Jesus would be the ultimate fulfillment, and John, this man, John the Baptist, would prepare the way for him. The covenant promises that were delivered to Abraham landed on Jesus. They found their fulfillment in him. Again, John was to prepare the way. As we continue now in verse 59, we learn that the people would have called John, or this child, Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. How did she know that his name was to be John? I, I searched the commentaries uh, to find an answer to this question to see what others have said about it. Uh, commentators, ancient and more modern. And it is interesting that some insist that the Holy Spirit revealed it to her. The Holy Spirit revealed it to her that her son was to be called John. And so when John is, when Zechariah is finally able uh, to, to speak, when he writes it on the tablet, they find themselves in miraculous agreement with one another. Uh, Mary knew, or excuse me, uh, Elizabeth knew that his name was to be John, and so too did Zechariah. I wonder if Zechariah did not simply tell her uh, that his name was to be John, for that is what was revealed to him in the temple. How did he communicate it? To her, Well, we know that he uh, made use of a, a writing tablet at this moment in the text that we are considering. I do not doubt that he did the same thing before. Either way, Elizabeth's firm obedience to the word of the Lord is to be commended. The people wanted to name the child Zechariah. This would have been the traditional thing to do. And yet she was firm and insistent, his name is John. In verse 61, we see that the people were perplexed, and they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote this, His name is John. And they all wondered. I want you to notice three things about this passage that I've just read. One, the name John means God is gracious. The name John means God is is gracious. And I say, what a fitting name for the one who would prepare the way for the Lord's Messiah. Two, 
Notice the first statement. Notice the first statement Zechariah makes in the narrative of Luke after being struck with muteness is a kind of declaration of faith. He does not say it, he writes it. But this is the first we have heard from Zechariah after he has been struck with muteness. The last thing that we heard from him was a statement of doubt, remember. He was struck with muteness for nine months. But here is the first thing he says at the, at the end of this uh, trial that he endured. His name is John. Clearly, the Lord had done a work in his mind and heart during those months of silence. I do like to think about those months of silence and what they must have been like for Zechariah. Uh, what he must have been thinking about in his mind as he was consumed with, with abnormal silence. Three, notice that the people wondered or marveled over these things. And here is another theme to make note of. In this gospel the Gospel of Luke, people are again and again said to marvel or wonder over Christ and our salvation in Him. The people marveled. The people wondered. They were astonished at the things that the Lord was doing in their midst. This theme is introduced to us here in this passage, but it pops up again and again throughout Luke's Gospel. I'll give you just a couple of examples in Luke 2.33, we read, And his father and mother, that is referring to Joseph and Mary, marveled at what was said about him at the temple. And in Luke 8.25, we are told that the disciples were afraid, and they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this that he commands even winds and water, and they obey him? This is after that time when Jesus stilled the, the stormy sea. They marveled asking themselves, who then is this that has this power even over nature itself? And many more examples could be given. I think it is safe to say that Luke wants us to marvel over Jesus Christ and the salvation He has accomplished for sinners like you and me. You understand that this is how literature works. Luke could have said a lot of things about Jesus, about His conception and His birth and the things that happened in those days. He he could have probably chosen many other things to emphasize, but he chooses to emphasize these things, and he chooses certain terms so as to bring us along in the narrative and to cause us uh, to, to, to contemplate all of these things in a particular way. He wants us to rejoice. He wants us to celebrate the great mercy and grace that God has shown to us in bringing us the Messiah, Christ Jesus the Lord. He also wants us to contemplate Jesus and the things that the Lord has done in and through Him, and to marvel over Him. I think that is what we are being called to do already in Luke's Gospel. The birth of John the Baptist, the forerunner to the Messiah, was marvelous, for it was marked by the miraculous. It was announced by an angel. John's father, Zechariah, was struck with muteness. John's mother, Elizabeth, conceived in her old age after years of barrenness, and she delivered without fail even the agreement between Elizabeth and Zechariah concerning the name of the child was astonishing to those who looked in upon it. His name was to be John, to signal the grace of God that was in those days being poured out. Let us now briefly consider the second miraculous event recorded for us in this passage. And that is the loosing of Zechariah's tongue so that he could speak once more. I'm not even sure if loosing is a word, but I have used it here the loosing of Zechariah's tongue so that he could speak once more. In verse 64 we read, 
And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. When was Zechariah enabled to speak again? It was not at some random time, nor did he regain the ability progressively with the passing of time. Are you, are you following me here? It's not as if uh, he just began to speak one day again or, or began to be able to speak again. No, after about nine months of silence, he was made able to speak again immediately after he wrote the words, His name is John. We're to remember, the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. That is Luke 1.13. Zechariah doubted, and so he was struck with muteness. And it was not until he obeyed the voice of God as delivered by the angel and wrote, His name is John, that his tongue was loosed, and he was able to speak again. And what did Zechariah do with his regained ability? He used his tongue in the way it is meant to be used, not to utter doubtful and faithless words as he did before, but to bless God. In verse 65 we read, And fear came on all their neighbors, and all these things were talked about throughout all the hill country of Judea, and all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. So, the neighbors took note of this miraculous event. It was miraculous that Zechariah was struck with muteness after serving as a priest before uh, the veil in the temple there. That itself was miraculous. The people must have known it was a sign that some message had been delivered to him. But they also took note of how miraculous it was that Zechariah was able to speak once more in the moment that this child was born, when he was named upon his circumcision, and as he wrote the words, his name is John, on the tablet. In a previous sermon, I noted that Zechariah was struck with muteness as a punishment for his disbelief. But I also said there was a blessing in it. And I can think of at least four blessings for this period of time where Zechariah was unable to speak. One, I think we must say that Zechariah himself was, in a strange sort of way, blessed by the muteness. He doubted the word of God delivered by Gabriel, but when the Lord chastised him in this way, it was a clear sign to him that the word of Gabriel was true. In fact, Gabriel, or excuse me, Zechariah doubted and, and said, how will I know that these things will be? Well, here is how. Zechariah, you'll be unable to speak. Uh, for, for nine months, it will be, as it were, a sign to you. Uh, this muteness was a blessing even to him because it was a sign or proof to him concerning the truthfulness of what was said. Also, being unable to speak, I think we must say that Zechariah was freed to think. And judging by the context, the content of what he said after his ability to speak was restored, and we will come to that next week, Lord willing, in the next passage, I think it is safe to say that Zechariah spent his time contemplating the Holy Scriptures. I've already said to you that his prophecy, his words, are dripping with the Old Testament. And so I think it is safe to say that Zechariah used this time of muteness to think and to reflect specifically upon the Holy Scriptures so that as he, 
so that as he emerged from this time, he was ready to give glory to God with his tongue and with his lips. He was ready to speak truth and to speak truth with faith in his heart. The Lord silenced him and brought him low so that he might fill his mind and heart with the word of God. And when Zechariah was lifted up again and restored, he was ready to speak in a faithful and God-honoring way. He blessed the Lord. He gave praise to God for the salvation that had come. Two, here is another blessing for Zechariah's muteness. And I do not want you to take this the wrong way. Zechariah's muteness must have been a blessing to Elizabeth as well. I'm sure she was grieved over the loss. I really do. I trust that they had a very sweet marriage. Uh, I trust that she was grieved over not being able to speak to her husband during these days. Imagine all of the things she was experiencing as a woman who was advanced in age, who was now barren. Uh, The community is looking in upon her and wondering. I'm sure she did want very much to speak with her husband about these things openly. Uh, But we must remember that the muteness was assigned to her as well. I trust that Zechariah did communicate to her the essence of what was told to him in the temple, perhaps through writing. And this was a sign to her as well. It was a confirmation and reassurance that the things said to Zechariah in the temple were indeed true, so that she could walk by faith. Just think of uh, the words of Elizabeth that we encountered in the previous text, how faithful she was as Mary came to visit her. She understood what the Lord was doing, and she declared... Um, truth when she was given the opportunity to speak. Uh, Three, Zechariah's muteness, along with the timely restoration of his ability to speak, were assigned to all who considered their testimony and looked in upon their household and their child. Fear, I think we were to see this as reverential fear, came upon all their neighbors, the text says. As their neighbors looked in upon this, the period of muteness followed by the loosing of Zechariah's tongue, fear came upon the neighbors. And the word about this spread throughout the hill country of Judea. Uh, The people knew that the Lord was doing something marvelous in those days. These things were talked about throughout the region. These things were treasured in their hearts as they wondered what this child would be, for they could clearly see that the hand of the Lord was with him. Brothers and sisters, fourthly, the fourth blessing of Zachariah's muteness is this. Word of this miraculous event has been handed down through the corridors of time. It has gone to the ends of the earth. It has come even to you and me. Luke gave testimony to Theophilus concerning this thing that had happened And this testimony has come even to us who live so long after these events and in such a distant land. And here Luke is presenting these truths to us, these facts of things that happen, miraculous things that happen, in order to bring us greater confidence concerning the things that have been taught. I'd like to move this sermon toward a conclusion by suggesting to you that perhaps... Luke has set Zechariah before us as a kind of model for those who are uncertain and doubting. Just think about the order of Luke's gospel. Immediately after that purpose statement is given, I've written to you, O most excellent Theophilus, so that you may have certainty concerning the things you have believed, he says. Immediately after that, the figure that who is introduced to us is, in fact, Zechariah. And there he is, ministering in the temple. 
An angel appears to him. And what does Zechariah do? Does he have certainty? No, in fact, Zechariah is presented to us as one who doubts. And so he is struck with muteness and he is left to be for nine months. And yet he reemerges again in the narrative. And after making a statement of faith, his name shall be John, in obedience to the word of the angel, all of a sudden his ability to, to speak is restored. He gives praise to God and he utters truth, the truth that has been delivered to us in ages past as contained in the Old Testament. I wonder if he is not presented as a kind of, as a kind of model for those who are struggling with uncertainty or doubt. I wonder if we are not through Zechariah encouraged to be quiet and to hold our tongues and to contemplate the Holy Scriptures more carefully so that we might grow in certainty concerning Jesus being the promised Messiah. I think that is what Luke is doing with Zechariah here. He is, he is one of my favorite figures, in fact. I just love the image that is brought before us in this story. I could just picture Zechariah there, maybe frustrated at first that he could not speak. After a while, I picture him just accepting the reality and settling down and going to the scroll, unrolling it and beginning to study and to read and to say, could it be that my son will be the forerunner? Could it be that the Messiah is here? And when he emerges from this time, he is no longer doubting. He is no longer uncertain, but he is filled with faith. He is filled with certainty. To put it bluntly, brothers and sisters, I think it would be good for us to talk less and read the Bible more. That could be taken in many different ways, I know. But I think you understand what I'm saying in context. It would be good for us to hold our peace and to contemplate the Holy Scriptures with more and more care. And having done this, having contemplated the Scriptures with care, having believed them and having stored them up in our hearts, we will then be well equipped to speak of God and in the glories of the salvation He has worked for us. By God's grace, we will speak like Mary and Elizabeth. Isn't it beautiful, really, that here you have Zechariah, this male, who is a priest, who is blessed to serve in the holy place in God's temple. Luke takes him, though he was a righteous man, and I doubt, I doubt it not. I, I, I trust that he was indeed a righteous and faithful man. But Luke takes this male priest, one who is probably held in honor amongst the people, and he presents us to presents him to us as one who, who floundered at first a bit. He was doubting. He was uncertain. And then who are we introduced to? His wife Elizabeth. She has faith. And this young virgin Mary, living in an off-the-beaten-path town, she has strong faith as well. And it's not until we come back to Zechariah again after nine months of silence uh, that, that he displays faith and his tongue is loosed and he utters prophecy filled with uh, the Holy Scriptures. I do think that that is what Luke is do doing. He's encouraging us to hold our tongue, to be at peace, to go with reverence to the Holy Scriptures and to search them, to see if it is true that this Jesus of Nazareth was indeed the promised Messiah. By God's grace, I pray that we will speak like Mary, like Elizabeth, and Zechariah after his time of silence. By God's grace, I pray that He will use our words 
to bless His holy name, to magnify Him and to rejoice in the salvation He has worked for us in Christ Jesus. By His grace, I pray that the Lord will move us to rejoice in the Lord in our own hearts and also with others as we marvel over the wonderful things that God has done for sinners in Christ Jesus. I was reflecting upon this even this morning. We live in such a hectic age, don't we? Such a busy age. We live in this strange time, too, where everyone has the ability to publish their opinions to the world. Think of how strange of a time this is. People have access to the world. They can publish their opinions to the world so that we are constantly bombarded with them, but also are not we ourselves tempted to do the very same thing, to speak a lot, to say a lot, to publish our opinions to the world. And yet I think as Christians we need to learn to hold our tongues, to be silent, to be more contemplative, to go to the Holy Scriptures to be sure we understand the Word of God in our hearts so that we use our tongues uh, not in a doubtful way, not in a way that dishonors God, but in a way that gives glory to God as Zechariah did after his time of muteness was ended. Lord willing, we will consider the prophecy of Zechariah found in Luke 1, 67-80 next Sunday. But I would like to read this passage to you now as a conclusion to the sermon. And I want you to notice the change in Zechariah. No longer was he doubting. Instead, we see that he emerged from his months of silence, full of faith in the promised and soon-to-be-born Messiah. The text says that he was filled with the Holy Spirit, and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for He has visited and redeemed His people, and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of His servant David, as He spoke by the mouth of His holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers, and to remember His holy covenant, the oath that He swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve Him without fear and holiness and righteousness before Him all our days. And to his son John he said, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare His way, to give knowledge to the salvation of salvation to His people and the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Does this sound like a man who is filled with doubt and uncertainty now? Uh, far from it. Zechariah's mind and heart were filled with the Word of God, with the Old Testament Scriptures, and he knew at this moment in, in his life that the Messiah was in the womb of the Virgin Mary and that this son that was born to him was his forerunner. Thanks be to God for His covenant faithfulness and the salvation He has worked for us through Christ Jesus, the Son of Abraham, the Son of David, the Son of Mary. And thanks be to God for John the Baptist too, miraculously born to faithful parents, Zechariah and Elizabeth, to prepare the way for the Lord's anointed one in whom we trust and through whom we are led in the way of peace. Let's bow together for prayer. Our Father in heaven, I pray that as we continue to study this gospel of Luke that we ourselves would grow in certainty concerning Jesus the Messiah. Help us, O Lord, to consider the eyewitnesses that Luke sets before us, and to believe and to know for certain that these things, these miraculous things, did indeed happen. 
but help us to interpret them in light of what was said before in the Old Testament. Make us people of the book. Make us people who love the Word of God and who know it. Father, I pray that you would help us to store the Word of God up in our hearts. All of the words of Holy Scripture, may they be in our minds and hearts, but may we especially cling to these precious and very great promises concerning the Redeemer who was promised from long ago and who has come, Christ Jesus the Lord. May our faith in Him be strengthened. May our walk be made more faithful. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.